You never hear a successful person talking negatively. They may give criticism, but it's criticism to help you get better. They'll never just go on and just start, oh, this motherfucker, man. Because we ain't got time for that shit. Welcome to part one of the season four finale of the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Today, we're looking back at some of the most memorable conversations from this year. And this is the after school special, man. I'm not here to make you feel better. It's just the truth. You'll never be the hater doing better than you, my friend. And that is the truth. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. On this episode, we're looking back at some of our most iconic guests and the most insightful moments from this season of the podcast. From unleashing your inner savage to the power of humility and achieving lasting success, this episode has it all. If you have humility, you can do a lot. Because if somebody's humble, then they can accept feedback. If they can accept feedback, then they can change. Basically, if someone doesn't have humility, then it means that whoever they are day one has to be the person that they need to be at day 1,000. Because if they can't admit a deficit, then they can't improve. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick off this episode, we're revisiting my conversation with David Goggins, retired Navy SEAL, ultra-endurance athlete, and New York Times bestselling author. One of my favorite moments from our conversation was when David shared the genesis of his alter ego, Goggins. Well, discipline was huge, but then we always fall back on what's, on what's comfortable to us. What's comfortable for me was, if it's easy for me, you know, I'm going to do it. And so when I was going through pararescue training, I ran up against an obstacle that I didn't think I was going to run up, and it was the water. I fucking hated the water. and But I tried hard to get over that. And I would go to the pool and I would try and I would try. But my mind wasn't strong enough. David Goggins, even with all the discipline, I didn't have that next fucking level. When you're truly committed to something, not like where you like, you know, I want to be a doctor. But when I run into this roadblock, I don't want to be a doctor. No, I'm going to be a doctor come hell and high water. I needed that kind of commitment. And David Goggins didn't know about that commitment. I knew how to wash a car. I knew how to clean a house. I knew how to, you know, do all these manual labor jobs. But when it came down to true suffering, to the highest of suffering, I didn't have that next level of, all right, motherfucker, we have this next level. David Goggins wasn't enough. So I went into my mental lab and realized, but I want to be great, but I don't have greatness in me. 
So I had to create a motherfucker that was great. And in my mind, I'm really big on visualization. And people may think it's all kind of bullshit. Believe what the fuck you want. I don't give a shit. This is a true shit right here, man. I went in my mind. I said, okay, I want to look like this. I want to feel like this. And I want to have a mind that is fucking cast iron steel. That is fucking never dull. That is always fucking sharp. That was the biggest thing I wanted. I wanted to hit obstacles that fucked most people up, including myself. But I didn't waver. I didn't fear. I didn't run away. I just stayed and marinated in the fucking fear, in the suffering. And through that, building Goggins, I will become Goggins when necessary. And I started to do these things. On my own, I had my own training ground. I built a training ground. I wasn't Navy SEALs. If you go to Navy SEAL training not prepared, you're going to quit. So I built this training ground on my own. And I started doing these horrific things that David Goggins couldn't handle. But Goggins started slowly coming up. I started putting that visualization of the guy I wanted to create. And in that water, when things got hard, and I was training on my own, Goggins would appear. Goggins would appear. When David Goggins would come up, Goggins would smack him the fuck down and say, no, motherfucker, we're going to drag you through this. And that's kind of how it happened. Over a period of time, this man evolved. Goggins became the guy that can withstand all kind of torture and pain and keep coming after you. And that's where that next step with uh, evolution became. Now, it's interesting because I think one person could see all this and see you in action and feel inspired. And then there's a whole another set of people that kind of have the opposite effect in the sense that, you know, in the book you talk about, sometimes people feel uncomfortable around you because they feel judged, which is not true. You're not judging them, but really they're judging themselves. I'll tell you the truth, man. I was a fucked up person. I had a lot of problems. But I'm going to give credit where credit's due. When you work as hard as I do, and people don't want to believe it, but they know it's true. They, they know it's true. It's, it's how I talk. It's how I look. It's a look in a, in a, in a person's eye. You know, it's motherfucking ain't bullshitting you. So you can think I'm lying all you want, but in the back of your mind, you fucking know this guy's the real deal. So when I get around you, I'm like a fucking lie detector. I'm not calling you out. I'm not saying a word, but the second you start to get close to me, like those metal detectors, you get that metal detector on the beach, you find that watch in the sand. That's what I am with people, man. They get around me and they know what they're not doing. They know how hard they're not trying. And I bring out the worst in them because they know that God, man, they start to judge themselves without me even saying a word. They start to go through their own resume of life and start realizing I'm not doing enough. I haven't done enough. And what that does in turn is it makes them very angry at me or whoever is working hard. Whoever that hardworking person is that they get around, they're immediately not going to like you because they know that you're working hard for everything you have and they just refuse to do that. So the only thing best to do is run their fucking mouths and talk shit about it. People always talk about they've got naysayers and critics and haters and so on. But look, you can look at any of the videos you post online. Just look in the comments. They're all there. And you talk about a yep. strategy that you've used to actually turn this into energy. The, the haters mixtape. What is the haters mixtape? So basically, when I was younger, things used to bother me. Hate bothers everybody. 
People want to say it doesn't bother them, but it does. When someone wants to get on there and, and, and talk about you in a way that's not truthful or just talk shit about you in whatever way you know they want to, I started realizing, so I'm, I'm always about studying the mind. But most of my studying, it comes on studying my own mind, but studying other people's minds. So for the longest time, I was like, man, why are people talking so much shit? But once I started studying the mind of the weak, you'll never hear me talking about somebody else. You'll never hear a successful person talking negatively. They may give criticism, but it's criticism to help you get better. They'll never just go on and start, oh, this motherfucker, man, because we ain't got time for that shit. I ain't got time to go on your Instagram or your Twitter or your Facebook or your blog or anything and run my mouth about you. First of all, it shows I'm not a man. Second of all, it shows I'm just a bitch. So I started studying these motherfucking weak people who, these trolls, these shit talkers, these haters. I'm like, man, you're exactly where I was years ago. So the more I studied and the more I realized, man, the problem's not me. And this in the after school special, man, I'm not here to make you feel better. It's just the truth. You'll never meet a hater doing better than you, my friend. And that is the truth. So what I do is I take all of that shit and I get all the hate. I get my phone and I talk into it. What everybody said about me, I'll talk into it. So then I start having fun with it. I started putting beats to it, different tracks to it. Eminem soundtracks, whatever. Started putting on a loop. And next before I know it, man, I'm like, damn, this shit's kind of fucking badass. Who the fuck gets their haters content that are talking about yourself? And I listen to it. And before I know it, it becomes the ultimate fuel. Even though I'm not listening to their shit that way, it just gives me a spark on those days when I'm like, I want these motherfuckers to hate me even more. The haters follow you like a motherfucker. They know more about you than your mama knows about you. They get all your books. They get all your podcasts. They get all your social media. They know where you live. They know where you sleep. They know everything about you. Me knowing that, I'm going to let you know about this too, my friend. I'm going to give you some more fuel to hate on me, man, for you to not like yourself even more. So that's that's where all that comes from. <laughs> Well, well, dude, I, I'm curious. So with the first book, Can't Hurt Me, immediately goes to the top of the charts, New York Times bestseller. Uh, around the time, I think Michelle Obama's book came out. And then I don't know if you meant to do this again, but you fast forward a few years later, Michelle Obama comes out with a second book right around the time Never Finished releases and boom, again, once again at the top of the charts. How did life change for you between the first book and the second book, just from the standpoint that David Goggins becomes a household name financially, you know, you're, you're taken care of. You, you kind of look at things in terms of like, where's the motivation coming from then? And I probably used the wrong word because it's probably discipline, but where's the desire and that fire coming from after, you know, you've achieved all this success? Like I said in the beginning, a lot of people think that I'm just some fucking warrior, some guy that does push-ups and sit-ups and runs. <laughs> they got it so wrong. They got it so wrong, man. Like most of my true ability comes from the discipline of mind. And that's where my motivation was, is that most people put me in a category. They didn't know the side of me that can write deep, thoughtful books 
and give people things that can make you cry, make you happy, make you sad. I can bring you through an emotion. I can give you 10 years of life within three pages. For me, I grew up and I thought I was real stupid. I thought I was dumb. You know, I thought I couldn't read and write. All these different things, man. So the motivation for me now is that while I do run a lot and I do do a lot of working out, that's where I go to school. That's my school, man. That's where I learn. That's where the deepness of my thought comes from. That's where the philosophical side of me comes from. That's where all my parables come from. I speak in like Bible terms a lot of times and people don't understand man, how, how deep I am. So when I go up against a Michelle Obama and I'm a self-published guy, you know, they spent over a million dollars trying to get Michelle Obama's book out there. Even though I didn't choose to come out with Michelle Obama both times, it was by chance. It was the energy of the world. I come out with the, one of the biggest women people of all time. All right, motherfucker, let's go. You're a smart, brilliant woman. This ain't got nothing to do with fucking running, swimming, push-ups, sit-ups. It's the intellectual side that motherfuckers thought I didn't have, that I do have. That was the motivation. I'm going to go up against the best of the best in book writing. And I'm going to be better than you. That was the motivation. The creative mind through the suffering, through the life that I thought was horrible, but it was the ultimate training ground. The lessons I learned didn't come from Stanford or Yale or Princeton. They came from the hard knocks of life. I got a diploma in hard knocks, man. And so now I'm writing from the fucking calloused mind. I'm not writing from the Yale and Princeton's and Harvard's and being with all these political groups and shit. I'm writing from real world, deep, savage, deep in shit. And the beauty of that, when I go up against these savage, great minds, these great people who are smart and the whole world knows them. And just a fraction of people know me. But every day, Jennifer wakes up. I'm looking right at them. My book's right by them. I put no money in the marketing. Put no money in the shit. It's just grit, hard work, and the Sergeant Jack disciple of discipline shit that got me there. So all these motherfuckers who think they may be stupid, who think they may not be able to get it done... I got something to tell you. You can compete with the top minds in the world if you're willing to armor and callous your fucking mind and outwork them motherfuckers and dig deep. When most people see four walls, I see a massive empty space that deserves all kind of creativity to make it look beautiful. Next up, we're joined by Bill Perkins, renowned hedge fund manager and the best-selling author of Die With Zero, getting all you can from your money and your life. Many business owners say they love their work so much they never want to retire. But is it genuine passion or something else? During our conversation, Bill shared his thoughts. I think one is habits, right? When you get good at something, like, you know, the pros make it look easy. It's because they've been doing it repeatedly. Hundreds and hundreds of times. It's second nature, right? Like, look at Stephen Curry hitting a three, right? It's like, I love hitting threes, right? Like, and so if you put a rat in a wheel... Right. You got to give them the cheese and they love the cheese. And right. But eventually you don't even have to give them the cheese. You just show them the wheel and they'll start running and they, they love running and they forget the connection to why they were running. They were running for the cheese. Right. And so I use that for people in life. And a lot of it, I think, is just habituated. The second thing is, is that I believe human beings are 
puzzle-solving AIs. We love solving puzzles, right? And so the puzzle of work is the thing that people know they love solving, and it's the only puzzle they know. But that doesn't mean that's the optimal thing they should be doing with their life and their only source of enjoyment. I was had a conversation just the other day. We were talking about the uh, Monty Hall question. Do you know the Monty Hall question? Yeah. So there's three doors. The guy picks a door for the prize, and then... Monty Hall opens up one of the two doors that doesn't have the prize and then asks the person, would you like to switch, right? And the mathematical answer is you always switch, right? And people are like, why? I says, well, now you have a 50-50 chance. And when you took, when you first guessed it was one third and sometimes people still don't get it, but I like to ex expand it out to infinity. Let's say I presented you, there's one door with a prize and there's a million doors, right? I say, pick a door. You pick one door. Then I eliminate 998,998 ,998 other doors so that there's only two doors. And I said, okay, do you want to stick with your original choice or do you want to switch? Everybody goes, yeah, I would want to switch, right? Like what's the odds that I picked the, the right prize? I say that's life. People wind up at a job like I'm an attorney and I'm doing a thing and this is what, and I love it. And I was like, yeah, but is it really the best thing you should be doing with your life? What's the odds that you happenstance fell into the best thing you should be doing for your life out of the millions of things you can be doing in the world, right? And the issue is, is you've been habituated. You like the people. You've been trained to eat near work. Your personal relationships come from work. Everything you've done comes from work. The whole work has taken over your life. And you are now, not only do you like solving the puzzles and you have a habit, you're dependent on it. A lot of people leave work. They like they don't know how to socialize. They don't know how to meet their neighbors. They don't know how to do anything. You know what I mean? These are atrophied muscles that they haven't used. And so that's my theory on why you have a lot of resistance. Like, I just love my work. I, I do the work, whatever. It's like, I can't really argue with that. You know, I get it. I get in with people. I'm like, listen, heroin addicts, they feel great. You know, you <laughs> they don't have a problem, right? They're happy. You can't argue. Like, heroin's a great drug, right? Like, you're just saying like, listen, I don't think this is the best life you can possibly live. I think if you got off heroin, you would actually have a more fulfilling life, but they love the heroin. And so everybody has their own version of the heroin argument with, I love my job. To your point, it's probably become, it's shaped someone's identity, right? It's in their mind, it's become their purpose, right? Their networks, their peer groups, everything is around that. And when they're out, that's all they talk about, right? So they, I mean, they don't know if maybe they would have loved surfing or they would have loved something else. Or in your case, obviously poker, right? Just all the things that they could have done. It's an interesting experience sometime where so much of this parallels to like just money. And if you were to say, hey, if I gave you a hundred million dollars today, would you still be doing what you're doing? Right. And, and for many people, they'd say, well, no, I'd stop and I'd go try out these things or do X, Y, and Z. And you're thinking, well, so what are you waiting for? And they're like, well, I'm waiting for the, the hundred million dollars. So I'm curious from your standpoint where I think in the book, you mentioned that, you know, while many financial planners, they're of the mentality, not all, but just a save, save, save. They're thinking about the future, thinking about retirement. Economists, on the other hand, are recommending spend, spend, spend. And I'm curious as to why and who's right. Backing up a little bit, going back to that, you know, I love my job. It's that when you talk to somebody who loves their job, you got to deconstruct it. You love the people. Well, you could still see the people and not do this job. Why can't you invite them on dinner? Why can't you just take your money and take them on trips? You know what I mean? You can pay them on vacations. Like you could still do this. I like whatever. Like a lot of the things that the job provides are not the only way to get them, even with the same people that are there. You'd actually see them more. It's just that that format, that methodology is what you've been habituated and inculcated to do. And therefore, you don't do another thing. Now, going back to 
I'm sorry, the economists with the spend, 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 save, 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 you know, it's, it's in between, right? The data shows that people's net worth, those who save are rising in their seventies. And I'm like, my head is ready to explode. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, when is the party? Like, I don't mind people saving. I'm just like, tell me what are you saving for? And when is the party? Just, just let me know. Just let me know. Just tell me the date, right? Like what is going on here? And so What's that is indicative of is people are on autopilot building wealth for no purpose other than build wealth. They're exchanging hours of their life for no purpose. Right. So I understand what you're saying, but I'm trying to be the contrarian in, in addressing, you know, let's say the person yeah. listening, they're saying, well, Bill, maybe it's not for no purpose. What if I get sick and I need to take care of myself? What about our kids? What about taking care of our family or our extended family? Let's say somebody's rationalizing it that way. So there was a couple things in there, and I'll, I'll go first with the first one we'd say sick. And I said, a lot of people use that argument, like, what if I get sick or whatever, as an excuse, and it's kind of like a backwards-looking excuse, it's not really the proper, is to be an insurance agent for themselves. And so there's a little part in the book where I say, you're not the best insurance agent. Who are you kidding? First of all, you have one client. Second of all, you don't know anything about the statistics of the things you're doing. You're just making up a bunch of baddies. And so therefore, you're inefficiently accumulating wealth or wasting hours of your life for an insurance policy that you're really not the best. If you're concerned about certain risks and mitigating certain risks, then it's much better for you to go buy the insurance product than for you to be your own insurance agent. So buy the insurance policy and then go live your life and go have fun, right? But this idea that I'm going to somehow mitigate against alien robots invading plus getting sick plus whatever. I'm like, you're not the guy. You're not the guy or the girl, right? Like this is just you making up a backwards excuse out of fear, right? I have fear. I don't want to admit that I'm afraid. So I'm just going to make up this excuse. Well, I need to save for all this other thing. So let's address those fears rationally. I, it's okay. Like, you know, I don't like sharks. You know, I, I, I'm afraid of a lot of things, but the things I'm afraid of and the things that I'm not willing to take a risk on I will buy the insurance product from people who have maybe a 6% edge than me giving up a 30, 40, 50% edge and not living my life. That's one, one part of it. The other part is, you know, I get a lot about kids and, and et cetera. And one of the things that, you know, there's a chapter called What About the Kids, right? And the first thing I say is that when I say spend all your resources and use all your resources before you die, I mean exactly that. Your resources, not your kids' resources. So that if we're really being intentional with our lives and we want to help our kids out and give them an inheritance, right? We need to think about the physics of their bodies, right? They'll mentally reach mental maturity at 28, physical maturity at 33, plateau and head into decline as well. And their ability to convert money into experiences declines just like your ability declines. And so therefore, the utility of money for them has a maximum value date. I argue it's between 28 and 33. And so, you know, if you look at the United States of America, the average age of inheritance, I think, is like 60. They're not effing kids anymore, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? When you give them money, what you're really giving them is life energy hours in order to make choices and have experiences. Well, guess what? They're not wakeboarding at 60. And they're not climbing Kilimanjaro. They're not doing a lot of things that they could have done, right? That doesn't make sense, right? Second of all, I say that when you just kind of leave it to random chance, what you don't spend, kind of like a tip on the way out, you're leaving them a random number. 
That's not deliberate. That's not intentional. That's not love. That's autopilot, right? And then also there's this thing that unfortunately it would be random people. The three R's, random people at a random date because people generally don't know when they're going to die and a random amount, right? Because they're not really planning their life and being delivered to what they're going to spend. So what I recommend is, is that you separate the money out. You put it in a trust. This is a show about attorneys. So they, they probably know more about it than I do, right? I learned from second hands. So that if you go out and hit somebody or get in a bar fight or whatever, somebody sues you, you're not gambling your kid's money. It's safe. And then the control of that money turns over when you deem appropriate, which should be, I argue, between the ages of 25 and 33. And so that accomplishes two things. One, you're intentional about your giving. You're giving them to them at the maximum impact time. And you're taking away the risk of losing their money. I can't go gamble away my kid's money. It's their money. Right? And it will turn over to them at the time that I believe they will be mature enough to receive the gift, but not too old to enjoy it or to have so many experiences disappear that they can't enjoy. What would your advice be to someone, let's say, who, who wants to maximize their life energy? They want to maximize these experiences and levels of fulfillment, but they tend to play it safe and they have, let's say, a risk-averse personality. It really takes thinking about what risks you're concerned about, right? I guess, you know, I get a lot of concerned about outliving my money. I was like, well, buy an annuity, figure out the amount you want and then buy an annuity right? It's the opposite of an insurance policy, right? If you live too long, you think you're worrying about living too long, buy an annuity. I'm worried about long-term care health. If you buy long-term care now, it's very cheap. It's insanely cheap, actually. People say, oh, that would cost too much money. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And the younger you buy it, the cheaper it is, right? Because they go out and they take the risk and buy stocks and do things, et cetera. They take a risk against the inflation on long-term care. So I would say that take the moment to unplug, get off autopilot, Figure out what risks you want to mitigate and see what the best way it is to mitigate that risk. Well, I will argue that the best way to mitigate that risk is not you piling up a bunch of cash that you never touch and, and you die with. Next up, we revisit my conversation with best-selling author and renowned marketing expert Alex Hormozzi. During our conversation, we discussed moments of despair, partnerships gone wrong, financial droughts, and the audacious start of his nine-figure venture, Acquisition.com. There are many rock bottom moments, but the, you know, the, I would say the two most famous of them, if there, if, if stories can become famous, um, was when we switched out of the brick and mortar gyms and got into the turnaround business. Um, you know, the, the reason I I made that move was because I was supposed to be opening more and more locations with a new partner. So I sold five and I opened a sixth with this kind of new model that was going to be like a launch and go model. And so uh, the guy that I partnered with was like, "Hey, I'm really good at operating. You should instead of doing these turnarounds, just." open it, fill it, and then I'll just come behind you. And then every month you can open up one to two locations and own them all. And I was like, that sounds great. He said, you know, but I have some financial, you know, issues and uh, my credit's not good. So of course you, you know, of course you'll personally guarantee the lease and front all the money. And I was like, of course, and I'll do the work too, of course. I mean, that's any nice guy would do that. And so, you know, everyone already knows where this goes. Six weeks later, you know, I crushed the launch of this new gym. And then I look at the bank account, bank account's empty. And I put all the money from selling my gyms into that bank account too, because I was young and I didn't understand how this worked. All the money that I'd had from the five years or four years of building my own gyms was gone. And so I just had this gym and I was like, dude, what the hell? And uh, he said, I know you've been skimming from the top of this business. And so that was just my share. 
it hadn't, I'd never occurred to anything like that had ever occurred to me. And so I went to a mentor and he's like, just go line by line with him through the financials. Like maybe he's concerned or whatever. And so anyways, I went to him with all the financials highlighted line by line to sh- like to show what every one of the expenses was. And then we brushed it off the table before we could even look at it. I was like, oh, okay. I just got completely scammed here. And so, uh, yeah, I lost everything. And so that was the first time I lost everything. And then, uh, that was when my chubby wife at the time, uh, took me to her parents' house, which I got to meet her parents for the first time. Uh, Hey, here's this guy from the internet that I just left everything for. Um, he's a real winner. He has nothing to his name and, uh, we're gonna start this business together. And so, uh, she said, Hey, we should keep doing this turnarounds, even though that this one didn't work out, the model's good. And so, uh, she got all of her friends to quit, quit their jobs, uh, to do this with us. Um, and so we were supposed to start on the 26th of December, which was 2016. And, uh, on the 24th of December, I had done this big launch to kind of recoup money because that was how I knew how to make money. So I did a big launch and we had like a hundred thousand dollars that was supposed to come to us. And then, uh, for whatever reason, the money wasn't coming, like we were processing the credit cards and it just wasn't getting deposited. And it'd been almost like three weeks. I was like, what's going on? So Christmas Eve, I get on the phone with the payment processor and, uh, I was like, I'm not getting off the phone until you guys send me the money. And, uh, long story short, they said, uh, Hey, because of that gym that you, uh, opened up, uh, and you had, you know, cause I shut the gym down that was with that guy. And I was doing launches in other locations. So I was running everything through a Southern California brick and mortar processor account, which I didn't know how this works. I just figured, yeah, you just process money through the the POS. And so I was making up memberships that didn't exist for gyms that I wasn't at. And they were like, this is a regular, we're just going to hold on to this money for six months. Um, And that was all of the money um, that I needed. And two days later, all of her friends were supposed to quit their job and start this new launch business with me. And so um, that was going to cost me $3,300 a day in advertising, hotels, airfare, rental cars, per diems for food, uh, for this new launch and go model. I had a credit card from when I had my gyms that still hadn't been canceled, uh, by Amex for a hundred thousand dollar limit on it. And, uh, that's when I told Layla, I was like, Hey, I think this could go really, really terribly wrong. And I think you would be justified in leaving me at this time. Uh, I'm like sitting in her parents' basement or you know, <laughs> like, I'm like, you really should leave me right now. I don't think this is going well for me. And she said, I would sleep with you under bridge if it came to that. And so, you know, when she said that to me, it gave me whatever confidence, you know, every guy could use. And, uh, I started, you know, I spent $3,300 a day on a credit card that, and meanwhile, I still didn't have a way to process money. So we're spending 3000 plus a day, you know, selling 20 to 60, you know, packages of fitness per day with all these sales guys. And uh, I couldn't process the money. And so on the last day of the month, I finally got some processor to give me a $50,000 limit. If you're doing the math here, 3300 a day does not add up to 50 K. But the good news was I could process 50K a month, which meant that on the last day of January, I processed 50. On the first day of February, I processed 50. I got two more running. And so the 50 and 50 covered my $100,000 from the month before. And then I was still back at zero again. Uh, <laughs> and so the next month that I made like twenty or $30,000 in profit after costs. And so that kind of concluded the first rock bottom. And then fast forward three months, all these gyms that we're doing these launches for started telling the customers to refund and um, go through them instead at half the price after we would leave the location because they had the relationship with them. But we owned the processing risk, which ended up being a recurring thing. So I lost everything again, the the little nut that I had saved up. And uh, that was when I called the gym owners to say, hey, we're going to sell direct to consumer. I think maybe I was telling Layla, I was like, I think maybe I'm, I'm out on this gym thing. Like something's not working and I just need to switch gears. Um, but when I called the first guy up and I said, I'm not doing it, he said, I put my life savings into this gym and, and I refinanced my house and I maxed it on my car. It's like, I need your help. And so push came to shove and I said, fine, I'll, I'll show, I'll show you how I fill gyms up and how my whole system works. I was like, but I'm not flying out there to save your ass if you can't sell. And he said, no, it's fine. 
And so he said, well, how much? And I said, $6,000, which at the time was the most money I could possibly imagine someone paying me. And he said, yes, in like five seconds. And I was like, holy shit. And I just, I was dumbfounded. And so then I just grabbed a piece of cardboard. I was like, oh yeah, what card do you want to use? And then I you know wrote it down and processed $6,000 in one transaction and had seven more calls that day and ended up doing $60,000 in a single day. And uh, Layla came back in from doing weight loss sales because I was going to be the new business. And I was like, hey, I think we're still in the gym business. I think we were just doing it wrong. And uh, she's like, wait, so we're back in gyms? I was like, yeah, we're back in gyms. And so from there, I called all the old gyms that we'd done the launches for, said, hey, remember that thing I just ripped $100,000 out of your location for? Want me to show you how I did it? And they said, sure. And then I sold them the thing. So that's the slightly longer story of uh, that with with many, many sadnesses taken out of that. <laughs> During that period of time, I also got a head-on collision in the DUI. My mother was in the hospital. Like there's a lot of other things that were going on too, but it was uh, it was a tough time for me. It's it's like the ultimate pitch for uh, entrepreneurship, you know, just, just now. And- I mean, I gotta say, yeah, right. Yeah. The ultimate <laughs> entrepreneurship, like beware. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's like, well, the frustrations lead to breakthroughs. And it, it, it seems like, I mean, every, every, every entrepreneur kind of has their own story, but it's, it's very rare if, if ever that I hear anybody having a story where everything always went, went up and, you know, and to the right, it was always it was screwed over. There was always some rock bottom moment. There was something that was a catalyst. I mean, when, when you're, when you're taking these hits, I mean, obviously you're human as well. I mean, it's, it's easy to get discouraged. What, what keeps you going? I mean, for me at the time, it was very away driven. You know what I mean? I didn't have like uh, a lot of times people are very driven by like their mission or their purpose or their big vision. And I had none of those things. I mean, my vision was A, don't be broke. B, don't let my dad be right. Really B more than A. But A was the facilitator of B. And so, yeah, just the idea of going back as a failure to Baltimore was just like, I would rather have died than done that. And so as much pain as I was going through at the time, it was better than the alternative of admitting defeat. And so for me, that was the thing that that get me, got me through it. And I think, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the, if there's, if I, you know, if there's a couple of key themes in the messages that I want to get put out is that like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of positive jargon that's put out by, you know, it's social media and influencers, et cetera, like follow your passion. But the thing is, is like, when you're starting out, everything sucks. Like everything sucks. And I was talking to a friend of mine and you, sadness comes from not knowing what to do, right? It's a feeling of hopelessness. Like you don't know what steps to take, which really just means it comes from, from ignorance. And when you're new, you don't know anything. So of course you're ignorant. Of course you don't know what to do, which leads to like very deep depression for a lot of entrepreneurs at different times in their careers. Most guys who are starting out are, are thinking there's something wrong with them because they're not passionate. But my probably singular message is use pain because most entrepreneurs don't need to look very far to find the pain in their lives. Anger, shame, fear, resentment, whatever it is, anxiety. Like we have different things that have fueled us in our lives and I would rather have people just use what they have because I think that is in essence what entrepreneurship is about is being resourceful, not really necessarily about having resources. And if we consider passion a resource as a requirement to be successful, I just don't think it's true. I think you need fuel and you should use whatever fuel you have. I think over time, if you get your head above water, you'll be able to find a different fuel. But I think that uh, away from fuel is more powerful than towards fuel. It's not necessarily sustainable, but in the beginning, you just need to move. And so a lot of ways that can get you to move. Yeah. How, how much do you believe, I mean, just, I know you mentioned this earlier, but just how much do you believe luck plays a role in success or does it play a role in success? I mean, for example, you meeting Layla, it's hard to tell the story of Alex without also the story of Layla, but you know, at the same time, if you'd never met, I guess you'd eventually get there, but you know, what would the path look probably pretty different? I think luck is huge. I think there are things you can do to increase the surface area of luck. So, uh, I think luck is a massive factor. I mean, I was born in America. I was born as a male, I was born to a doctor. So, I mean, like from that perspective, I already won. 
Uh, so like, yeah, do I think if I was born in Bangladesh as a girl that I would have been as successful as I am now? Probably less likely. A big part of who I am now is the upbringing I had. If I live someone else's life, I might be exactly the same way they are. And so in that way, I think it's very much life driven. I wonder like when, when Leo stood by you and, uh, you know, she said you sleep under a bridge. I, I have a similar relationship because my wife, you know, I, I've joked, we kind of have like a Southpaw story. When she met me, I'm a penny stock. I'm just starting the company. She's successful. She knows what she's doing. Then we've kind of grown the business together. And I've asked her a few times, like, Hey, well, you know, what, what did you, what did you see in me then? But I'm curious, what, what do you think? Uh, why do you think she stuck by you? I think Layla is an exceptional judge of people. I think if there's like one skill that Layla is world-class at is that she just, she just sees through people. Layla has never been wrong about a hire, about a partnership ever. Um, it's pretty impressive. And so I think she saw her, she's, I'm giving, I'm giving her words here, but I mean, she saw potential in me and she felt like if I had, if I was able to shed some of these bad partnerships and beliefs and relationships and things like that, that were weighing me down, that there was something underneath that was good. You know, a lot of ways that was kind of how both of us, I think, saw our relationship at the time was like, we're not good yet, but I think that we could be good together. And I mean, our relationship in the first two, three years was not was not like a, a Hollywood movie. You know what I mean? Like we were mostly business partners and we got married 11 months in, but like we didn't have a wedding. We didn't have a marriage. I mean, we had a marriage, um, but like we didn't have a party. We didn't have a honeymoon. We worked the day of our of our eloping and then we worked the next day. You know what I mean? It just, nothing happened. And we just worked straight through. But I think it was about three years in where we started to like really recognize one another and really find our groove kind of even romantically. So we have definitely like an atypical story uh, from that perspective, but it has worked out. Yeah. And, and I heard you mention on, uh, on a podcast, the importance of respect within a relationship, sometimes respect being even more important than affection. I mean, it's good to have both, but just to be able to respect one another. Yeah. I think there's, if you look at, um, gosh, I, I wish I could quote this better, but there's like the four horsemen of divorce. Uh, they did, you know, sure for this like Hallmark study, they like, they have couples bring up some subject that they argue about and they study how they argued and they could predict with like a 91% success rate, who is going to be divorced in 10 years. And there's four horsemen of like divorce. And the one that was the highest predictor was contempt, which can seen, be seen visually with an eye roll, which is both a lack of respect um, for the other person and also thinking you're better than them. And so that like combination is deadly for relationships. And I think that if you were to reverse that and think that like the other person is better than you are and have ultimate respect for them, then you might have something that could safeguard a marriage or a relationship. You know, I know the, the two of you worked together. I, I joke, my wife and I, I say like, you know, we've been together, but it's, it's like dog years, right? Because, you know, we, you know, we wake up together, we go to the office and then we come home. So it's just like multiplied by seven. But like, what, what advice do you have for other couples, whether they're considering working together, if they're already working together, how to, how to, you know, how to keep that going? I have to put my disclaimer that like, we've only been together seven years and I think in, in decades. So, you know, when I, when we cross our first decade, I'll let everyone know. But, you know, the only encouraging thing I can say is that from a time spent together, the average marriage, uh, people spend two hours a day together. Uh, and 45 minutes of that is high quality. And the other hour and 15 minutes is watching television, uh, or eating and doing like household activities. And so the amount of time we've spent together compared to the average relationship is we've had like a 45 or 50 year marriage, uh, comparatively in terms of hours spent. That being said, uh, with that large caveat, I think that the biggest thing that has worked for us is just acceptance, which is that Layla has never tried to change me and I've never really tried to change her. And I think I get a lot of messages, which is like, how do I find my Layla? Or more specifically, how do I make my wife into Layla? Which is a weird message to get because it means that you don't accept your partner for who they are. 
And so people were like, how do I get my wife into business? I was like, if she's not already in business, she's not into business. Like, you're not going to make her into business. It should be like a woman saying like, how can I make my man taller? It's just not going to happen. So I think, um, and this is going to probably be relatively controversial, but I think a lot of people lose in the draft. So a lot of people think about like, how do you, how do you coach a championship team? I think a lot of teams lose in the draft. They don't have the talent. And so again, that's probably a little bit contrarian to like all marriages are savable, which maybe they are. The question is, are they ideal or are they optimal for both partners in terms of achieving their, their potential? And I think a lot of them are, because I think a lot of people mature over time and probably wouldn't make the same decisions as they did, you know, 20 years ago, which is one of the hardest parts about a lifelong decision in general. And so I think that making sure that you're picking somebody who has the same long-term goal as you, has the same values as you. And I think the, the single greatest one is that they, that if you want to grow, that they want to grow. Because growth is also another word for change, which means that if you have two people who are changing for a long period of time, you just better hope they'd be changing in the same direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's you know, obviously a choice of spouse or life partner or whatever, you know, it's obviously probably one of the most important decisions we make in our lives. It's number one. So, okay. So on that note, then what would you say is like two and three? Well, I, I say that from uh, measuring from subjective well-being. So it has a 0.71 correlation to your subjective well-being as the strength of your relationship with your significant other. So there's nothing else that comes close to that. So I would say from that perspective, it is a, it is the, the most important one. And pretty much if you think about this, everything else is impermanent. The business you start is impermanent. You can change businesses. You can change, you can change markets. You can change where you live, you can change who you work with. Like all of these things are changeable. But if you are married and you believe in trying to stay with that commitment, then like you're making a permanent either detractor or addition to your life. And that person's going to interact with you probably more than anyone else. Not probably. You will be interacting with that person probably more than anyone else, especially if you work together. And so like pick wisely. Yeah. But two and three, where you live, like the actual market that you're in, uh, that's becoming less and less important. But I think just the, the circles you run in are important. I think from a business perspective, the industries that you choose to get into uh, have a huge influence on you. You know, if you're getting into steel mills uh, as they were going out or you're getting into newspapers 10 years ago, it probably wasn't the best call. So no matter how good you were, you probably weren't going to win. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with Joe DeSena. As the founder of Spartan, he's made it his mission to challenge people both mentally and physically. During our conversation, Joe shed light on the perceived softening of society and shared his perspective on what he refers to as the complacency epidemic. Think about how long we've been on the planet as a species. Think about every passing generation. I mean, listen, uh, you could watch any movie that takes place early 1900s, mid-1900s, early 1800s. And, and you can see the difference between the way we lived as a species then and the way we live now. It's no surprise. At the end of the day, we all want to make a living. So we sell each other stuff that makes our lives possibly easier, simpler, more satisfying. And, and every time we buy those things and we sell those things to each other, our lives become easier. Look, the, the worst one, the, 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 this is it right here, the phone. The phone is a disaster. When I was young, I actually had to find a pay phone. It could be two blocks away. I had to walk two blocks. Then if I didn't have a quarter in my pocket, I had to go find the quarter. I had to get changed. And maybe I walked another block to get changed. And by the way, a few generations before that, there was no pay phone, right? And a few ge generations before that, there was no car. Like, you were, you were horseback. So, like, we are living in a smaller and smaller comfort bubble every day to the point where we get upset if the Wi-Fi is not working on an airplane that is traveling 600 miles per hour at 30,000 feet. That is upsetting to us. 
We are crazy. I'm just going to rant here. The number one motivator for a human being, number one motivator, it's not sex, not drugs, not rock and roll, not food. Number one motivator for a human being is the avoidance of discomfort. That's legacy hardware and software kept us alive on the planet. Make sure we don't go out and freeze to death or sweat to death or fall off a cliff. We avoid discomfort at all costs. The brain senses discomfort and says, oh, time out. Relax. Check your phone. Don't go do that workout. Drink your coffee. Don't go outside. It's raining, right? We don't even know that's happening. And so our, our, our citizens, the folks around us in our communities, sell us stuff that helps us potentially avoid discomfort, right? Six-minute abs, five-minute abs, four-minute abs, chocolate cake that's not going to get you fat, Netflix you could tune into for 12 hours a day. And it's interesting because it's like, to your point, as we have more and more of these comforts that do make our lives easier, we've got air conditioning, you know, all, all this stuff. At the same time, one could also argue that as a society, we've never been more unhappy, right? There's never been greater instances of anxiety and depression and all these things. And yet you have more comforts than ever. It almost seems like it's an innate part of the human condition to almost need a degree of like earned dopamine, right? Like they actually seek out adversity in some sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm going to try my best to explain this. So I, I've been thinking about this for 42 years. It started 42 years ago. I had a, a kid next to me. I, was, I used to clean swimming pools at a very young age. And, and the kid next to me said he was depressed. And I didn't even know what that word meant. I was like, I, I don't even understand what you're saying. We have work to do today. And, and certainly there are people that have, you know, chemical imbalances or they've got biological situations, but most of the folks that are depressed are depressed for the reason you just said, which is we haven't done the work. Imagine a whiteboard. Imagine you and I had a whiteboard and imagine we drew a horizontal black line on that whiteboard and that represented your life. And then we drew another black line that represented my life. And anybody listening can draw a line representing their life. And that life, however we live it, is, is what we consume. Uh, the work we consume every day, the, the food we consume, um, the marriage we have, that's that line. That represents where we are in life. Now, all of us, all of us are chasing more. We want to move up the board. We want a little bit nicer car. We want a nicer house. Some of us want a better spouse. We want better kids. Whatever those things are we're chasing, if we only had more, if we could only move the line up, we would be happier, right? We're never happy though, because it's never enough. As soon as the line moves up an inch, we'd be happier if it went up one more inch, two more inches. It never stops. It occurred to me that the reason I'm always happy, although some people don't think I'm happy, the reason I'm always happy is because I go in the other direction every day. I go below the line. I take stuff away. I start suffering as soon as I wake up. And then when I get back to the line, when I walk back in my house and I have a wife and children and they're healthy and I have a meal, I'm like, well, I'm not doing burpees. I'm not taking a cold shower. I'm not running 20 miles. Like, this is pretty nice. And so unless you're really, really hungry at times, right? There's a great movie I saw on a plane uh, the other day called The Menu. You guys got to watch it. It's a crazy movie. And um, there's a scene, there's a moment, just like in any movie, right, any visual, you see the chef cutting this piece of chicken. It looks juicy. It looks good. Where my mind went right away when I saw it was, and this happens all the time when I see imagery or movies 
about food is the food tastes so much better when I think back to those moments where I was like hungry for two weeks straight, you know, going across Alaska in waist deep snow, 30 below temperatures. When I finally had a meal, a piece of chicken like I saw in that movie, that was the best chicken I ever had in my life. It could have been, it could have still had feathers in it. Blood could have been squirting out of it. It was the best chicken I ever had because I was so damn hungry. And so, you want to hear a great story? My kids and my friend's kids, we decided to go for a hike, I don't know, five, six years ago in Squamish outside of Vancouver. Me and my buddy uh, take the kids up overnight, way up in the mountains. It's a crazy night. We're not prepared because it started out a very wonderful spring day that turned into a snowstorm. And it was, it was crazy. We almost ate one of the children to survive. But anyway, when we came off the mountain, the kids wanted to stop at a Wendy's, which was unacceptable to me. We had to drive the extra hour to Vancouver and go get healthy food. But they broke me because for 24 hours they'd been out. We'd been on this hiking expedition. It was a matter of survival. And so I stopped and I said, everybody gets one small order of French fries. We had six children. My son tripped after we got the French fries and the French fries fell all over the floor of this Wendy's. Well, these six kids, my kids in there and their friends, dove on the ground and started eating the French fries off the floor. They were the best French fries they'd ever had. 48 hours earlier, if somebody would have touched their French fry on the table on their tray, they were, I can't eat that. My brother touched it. My point is, get yourself really hungry every day and you'll enjoy every morsel of your life. And it seems like doing hard things is the is the secret to happiness, right? Not not material possessions or anything like that. But for somebody who's listening, and I, I love your perspective on this because I know you're going to roll your eyes as soon as I ask this question. Some people might see toughness or mental toughness as some sort of an innate quality. But I imagine you were not this way from birth. No. At the end of the day, we are all really tough at birth. And then we get coddled. We get told what we can and can't do. We get fed in our little cages in our zoo with climate-controlled cages and food on demand. How the hell would we be practicing tough? We don't need to do anything. We don't have to hunt an animal. We don't have to walk to get to a phone. We don't have to do anything. How would we possibly be practicing tough? But yet, we practice cooking, we practice piano, we practice academics, right? But we don't practice tough. And then we're expected in life when the shit hits the fan and everything's up against us and we're facing obstacles, we're expected to perform. But you've been sitting in your cage in the zoo. You haven't done anything hard. How would you possibly perform when you face the obstacle? So what would be some steps to, to practicing hard? Like if you had to, just for someone to, to want to get started, they want to challenge themselves, what would you recommend? I know, I know you do cold showers. I've done cold plunges. It seems like you were actually doing those before it became popular. You were doing it years ago. Yeah, my mom, thankfully, my mom found all this stuff back in the 70s. She had a, a very forward-thinking Indian guru that she met, and so all this stuff she was pushing back in 1972, 73, and I grew up around it. I pushed back on it. I, didn't, I thought it was all hokey and ridiculous and crunchy, but, um, but later on I embraced it. Look, you've got to manufacture some adversity in your life. If, you know, if this was 1,500 years ago and we were doing this podcast on a cup and a string, I would be saying, we need more penicillin. We need more couches. We definitely need an invention called Netflix so we could relax a little because life is tough. We stand in horse shit every day. 
we're getting attacked by our enemies. Like we need a softer life, but but that's not the case for for us in the first world. And so uh, I'm I'm certainly not asking you to check yourself into a prison. I'm not asking yourself to row a rowboat across the Atlantic. But do you think you could wake up early and maybe go sweat and breathe heavy? Could you muster up enough energy to like at least take care of yourself and earn your breakfast, right? Could you get in a cold shower? Because for most of our existence on the planet, we didn't have hot showers. We had cold showers. There's a ton of biological benefits to a cold shower. Could, could you knock that out and, and suffer a little there? Maybe, maybe put your phone away for an hour or two, suffer there. Maybe, maybe skip a meal. You know, could you do that? So like, I'm not asking for a lot. You're not joining Shackleton's expedition and getting stuck in the ice for two years or, or climbing Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary. So like, yeah, manufacture a little adversity in your life and, and stop complaining because nobody cares. And I think a lot of the resistance is perhaps I think too few people have been on the other side of that. So I imagine it's probably rare that somebody runs a Spartan race and turns around and says, well, I really regret doing that, right? It's it's usually probably filled with like joy and achievement and, you know, and high fives and things like that. Same thing with a cold shower uh, or even if you're, you're jumping into a, you know, a cold you know tub of water or anything like that. My daughter, who sees me do this in the morning, she always asks me, she says, you know, Dad, do you enjoy that? And I, I don't know if my answer is that I enjoy it, but. I feel great afterwards. What would you say to that, that those who just haven't experienced the other side of adversity? I mean, we, we had a tagline for, for a long time. We still use it here and there. You'll know at the finish line, right? You'll know when you get out of the cold plunge. You'll know when you get out of the cold shower. You'll know at the end of the burpees. You'll know at the end of the Spartan race or the Tough Mudder event. If you came home and your dog was sitting on the couch watching TV, smoking a cigarette, painting her nails, and putting her hair in a bun, that would seem a little strange, right? Dogs don't do that. They're animals. If you came home, on the other hand, and your dog was chasing a bird in the backyard and running through the mud, completely out of breath and starving, and ha- like you'd say, oh, okay, that's a happy animal. That's the other side of doing something hard. Look, if you're listening to this and you're completely happy in your life and it's optimal and every day you've got a kick in your step, you're full of enthusiasm, it can't get any better, you're You've got tremendous gratitude towards everything and everyone around you. Keep doing what you're doing. But the numbers and the data show otherwise. The numbers and data say we're sick, we're depressed, we're fat, we're eating shit food. Like, time to change. What was the catalyst for you? I mean, I I recall in a former life you were working on Wall Street as an equities and derivatives trader. Uh, It seems your lifestyle was very different then. What what was the catalyst for you into, into this evolution? Well, mom, back in the early 70s, right? Mom found this. She pushed it. She introduced me to a 3,100-mile foot race in Queens, New York, that still exists today called the Transcendence Run. You run around a one-mile loop 3,100 times. So that was that was the beginning of the exploration. But then, without much knowledge, I signed up for something ridiculous. I did the Iditarod by foot across Alaska. Normally, participants do it with dog sleds. And I didn't have the dogs or the sled and um, it was 30 below and it was waist deep snow and, you know, almost died out there and felt so alive that I could actually remember. I like, I actually have um, this instinct of, of feeling alive and having tremendous appreciation for food because I remember how hungry I was. I remember how cold I was, right? Listen, I, I was telling somebody yesterday, when I go to bed at night, 
my whole life. When I go to bed, I giggle in bed. As soon as I get horizontal, I giggle. It's a funny response, but the reason I giggle when I reflect on it is I worked so hard, I'm so tired, that I'm so happy to be laying down. So if you're laying down at night and you can't get to bed and you're tossing and turning, you didn't push hard enough, right? If you're eating a meal, think about when a child eats a meal and they're complaining about the broccoli, they're not hungry enough. They're not hungry enough. They didn't earn that meal. Because if they're hungry, they'll eat their finger. I know, (laughs) I've been there, right? So you need to earn um, these tremendous gifts we get in life, a bed, food, a cold shower. It's a gift. Yeah. So I, I still I still want to revisit this perspective because my wife, she gives me a hard time about this because I say I need to earn everything, right? I need to earn this meal. I'm going to earn this nap. I'm going to earn, if we're going to watch this show, this Netflix, whatever it is, like I'm going to go do something to earn. And she's like, why do you always have to you know, like earn things and, and do it that way? And for me, it brings me gratification. I, I don't know if there was a point in my life where I decided to, to do things that way, but what do you think separates people who approach things from that perspective versus those that just just indulge? I don't think they know any better. I think, like you said, I don't I don't think they've ever gotten a taste of the finish line. I don't know if they've they've gotten a taste of what it feels like to just be so happy with what you've done and so relaxed with what you achieved, right? Like so unless you've gotten a little taste of that, how would you know? If you grew up in a traditional household these days and you're not eating, um, you're not consuming great food, you're eating a lot of processed foods, you're complacent, you don't know what you don't know, you're not pushing that hard, you don't know what you're capable, like how would you know? So I pushed my wife pretty hard when we met, she came out and did a bunch of these races with me and it was awesome, she got them done and look, she thinks I'm nuts and she did this stuff with me. And she's like, I don't understand. Like, when, when do we finally get to relax? When do you stop turning the hot water heater off in the house? Um, Because it's a little ridiculous. When do you stop pushing the kids to speak Mandarin every day? It's exhausting. I don't know. I, I Like, if I didn't squeeze the most out of life, if I didn't push really hard, I'd have regrets. And for me, regrets would be worse than the upfront pain of actually just doing the work. To close out this episode, we revisit my conversation with client experience expert and New York Times bestselling author, Joey Coleman. During his episode, we took a deep dive into his latest book, Never Lose an Employee Again. I've been doing customer experience for about 20 years now, and I was about five minutes into that career when I realized that you can't have a great customer experience unless you have great employees to deliver that experience. But I think the challenge is in most organizations, customer experience and employee experience are very siloed activities. Usually customer experience is the purview of marketing and sales and maybe account support services, whereas employee experience has a tendency to sit over in a silo of HR or human resources, and very rarely do those conversations interact. And so when I thought about writing books, I was like, We need to address this issue, but it's probably best served if it's in a separate book as opposed to in a giant book, because then we'd have a 5,000 page long book trying to talk about customer and employee experience. And I know throughout your research, there's there's a lot of data throughout the book that you you base a lot of these insights off of. One that I found particularly interesting was just that a substantial number of new hires quit within the first year with a significant percentage leaving within the first 100 days. What are some of the potential reasons for these early departures and then how can organizations address them? 
it's a huge pandemic that is facing every business on the planet. And most businesses aren't really tracking the speed at which people leave. And that was one of the things that was most interesting to me. You know, when someone leaves, there's any number of reasons why they might say they're leaving. But when they leave quickly, that seems to indicate that something went wrong fast. And what that usually is, is that most businesses are focused on orientation instead of onboarding. Orientation is things like, okay, uh, this is when you need to be at work and this is where we have lunch and this is where the bathrooms are. And by the way, if there's a fire, here's the alarm. Interestingly enough, those are the same kind of things you would learn if you went on a cruise, right? They're going to tell you, here's where you get your food. Here's the bathrooms. Here's what we do in case of a fire. That's not onboarding. Onboarding is a more methodological approach. It's a more systemic approach that says, what can we do to make someone feel they're part of the team, that they understand that they're part of something bigger than themselves? Is there something about this, that first year mark? Because you, you almost look at it as like a tour of duty these days. Like it's rare that you come across people that say, I'm going to retire from this organization. I'm going to be there forever. It used to be, I think, you know, decades ago, this was much more the norm versus now they hit the one year mark, you know, basically 364 days. And on, on the 365th, they're, they're somewhere else. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think part of it is because, frankly, the way business is treated, folks. I mean, when our parents were working for places, you're right. It was the 20, 30 year, get the gold watch, retire, here's the pension. As organizations moved to be a little more transactional with their employees, what we've seen in the last three years is employees have caught up with that trend and have started to say, well, wait a second, if you're not interested in a long-term relationship with me, I better be looking out for myself and moving forward. I think everybody kind of grew up with that philosophy of, well, you don't want to see too much jumping around on a resume. Now it's the case that if you are too long at any one organization, many employers are looking at that saying, well, how stagnant are you? How set in your ways are you? We do things differently than that other place did. And so we're kind of reaching an interesting point in the evolution of the workplace where employees are just aware, as aware of the need to be adopting new skills and gathering new skills and acquiring new skills as employers are. And that's creating a, how should we say, challenging confluence of uh, perspectives for both employers and employees. Interesting dynamic. I know you referenced throughout the book of, of employees essentially saying that you don't care about me as much as you care about the business and then employers saying that you don't care as much about the business as I do. That's very true. And what's interesting is I empathize. As a fellow business owner, I get that we want our people to really care about the business. But I think what the secret is employees want their employers to care as much about them as they do about the organization and the business. And I think most employers, in my experience, really do care, but they skew a little bit more towards the tell of show and tell than the show. We're all familiar with this concept of, you know, kindergarten going to class and doing show and tell. We should lead with show, not tell. And I think a lot of organizations and leaders will talk about how much they care about their people, but then they'll do things that just seem completely antithetical to that philosophy. Oh, we really care about you a lot and work-life balance is totally important, but wait, you're, you're asking for a vacation? Sorry, you're going to need to ask four months in advance. Oh, you want a day off? What's your reason? You know, we're not really living what we claim to be living in our core value statements and our employee benefit descriptions. On that note, I know you mentioned that the Bonnie Raitt famous song, give them something to talk about, and especially the importance of that first day. What are some ways to create a memorable experience on an employee's first day? Let's have somebody there to welcome them on their first day. You know, so many people show up for, I had this experience. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where I showed up for a job one time. 
I show up, I get to the reception desk. Joey Coleman, I'm here. It's my first day at work. And they're like, I didn't know you were starting today. Uh, what, what department are you in? And I tell them and they're like, well, who's your boss going to be? And I'm like, I actually don't know. I didn't interview with my boss. I'm being assigned a boss here. I don't know. I'm supposed to. Oh, let me see. You know, I sit, I wait. I'm like, oh my gosh, they don't even care. Find out they're like, oh, sorry, your boss is out on vacation. So we've got another person in that department will come meet with you. But hang on, here's someone from HR who's going to take you to a room. And we come into the room and it's like, here's a giant binder of our corporate policies. Here's a bunch of paperwork for you to fill out about your health insurance and about our 401k plan. And by the way, make elections and choices for that before you even know what the plan is. And then we're going to have you watch some videos about sexual harassment that were filmed in the 70s and haven't been updated since then, but we're legally required to do this. Sorry. And then we're going to send somebody back to have lunch with you. It's not going to be your boss because remember your boss is on vacation, we're going to bring two other workers from your department who've known each other for years. They don't know you. So they're going to end up having a really clicky conversation, but they got a free meal out of it. So they're happy to go to lunch afterwards, come back to the conference room because uh, guess what? We actually don't have your desk set up. Your computer isn't here yet. And the phone isn't ready. Don't worry. We're really excited to have you here. Why don't you leave early and come back tomorrow? Here's the crazy thing about that hypothetical. And the reason I share it, almost everybody listening has worked at that employer. And some of you are saying, God, Joey, you work for the same place I did. No, this is pervasive across organizations globally. What if instead you did what they do at a company called Jam? Jam is a Canadian company that runs sports leagues. I know it's another sport example, but hang with me, friends. They have a corporate role as well. And what they do is they run like your corporate kickball team or your softball team, and they create those leagues. They also do virtual cultural building activities. So if you want to have like a game night or you want to have a trivia night or a happy hour, they'll host and facilitate that. Jam does something really interesting for employees on their first day. The employee pulls into the parking lot and they're met at their car by their manager who's already outside and sees the car pulls up and knows that that's the car that is not the car that's usually in this parking lot. And they come right up to you. They greet you and they walk you in the front door. And as they open the door and you walk into the building, they start playing your walk-on music. What? Walk-on music? Yes, as part of the interview process, they interview you and they ask, what's your walk-on music? And so they start be playing your favorite jams. The speakers are pumping. You're feeling excited and you round a corner and there is a tunnel of humans and it's their high five tunnel. And as you walk through this tunnel, you're high fiving all of your new coworkers and you're feeling pumped. You're feeling excited and you turn the corner and you go into the conference room where not only do all the people from the high five tunnel file in behind you, but on the screens in the conference room are all the employees who work remotely or who aren't there that day, who've decided to join in the celebration. And then they have a series of bantering questions where they ask you things like, what are you binge watching on Netflix right now? Or what's the craziest thing you've done in the last two months? And they try to have your spirit come out while they also share their spirit. And at the end of this, you're presented with your rookie hoodie, the hoodie that you will wear that has the logo of the company on it and your name at all of the new employee welcoming type of things that are going to happen in the next year. And then what you also realize at that point is you're looking around, is folks are wearing hockey sweaters, basically jerseys from their hockey team that have their name on the back and the year they joined the firm. And that's what you get on the one-year anniversary of your employment. You transition from the rookie hoodie to the hockey sweater. The reason I share this story is because that's certainly something you're going to talk about when you get home that night. You've had an emotional experience, but they're also laying the groundwork for you've just become part of a new team. And we want you to feel welcomed as a team member. 
Now, again, some people might be listening to, wait, that feels like another sports example. What's interesting is I'm a big believer of thinking about the people who you work with as your team, not your employees. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm excited to be an employee. Frankly, no one wakes up and says, I'm excited to be an employer, okay? But what people do get excited about is being part of a team, being part of something bigger than themselves. And the way we think about that first day on the job, you can create a feeling of team by shamelessly stealing from things that teams do to build cohesion, to build connection, to build collaboration. Aren't these all the things we want our employees to experience? I certainly think so. There's another concept you talk about where, you know, it's interesting. We, we had this come up on a podcast. It was like a Q&A. Somebody had asked around employee uh, appreciation and just showcasing your appreciation. And what's interesting is it's free, right? It's free to do. Most employers, I, I would even say myself included, like struggle uh, with, with doing it enough, right? And, and just we could always do more. I'd love you could speak to some perhaps are there structured ways to be able to provide employee acknowledgement, acknowledging their accomplishments or even small wins to reinforce just an overall culture of appreciation? Absolutely. And I think you can create a culture of appreciation and you need to create a culture of appreciation if you want people to be engaged and if you want them to be retained. One of my favorite examples of this, because I know that CEOs, leaders, managing partners, You've probably got enough on your plate right now. You don't need Joey in a podcast saying, here are five more things you can do next week, right? Create a culture of this. So one of the companies I profile in the book is a web design firm called Yokoko. And what they did is something that any firm, any organization could do. They created this model where every month, every employee gets $50. And they can award that to any of their coworkers or colleagues in increments of $5 for a job well done. So, hey, thanks so much for helping me with that intake call. Thanks so much for uh, referring that me to that right case that I needed that was the answer to the problem I was working on. It's a small thing. It's a small amount of money. But when you start to have proof on a regular basis that you matter, the game changes. I have yet to meet a human being on the planet, Michael, who has said to me, I'm all good. I, I've gotten all the praise I ever need. I never have any self-doubt. I'm fully confident in everything I do. Every human being wants to feel seen, wants to feel heard, and wants to feel appreciated. When you build in regular ways for team members to acknowledge each other, for you to acknowledge them as a leader, as a manager, it changes the conversation. And again, it doesn't have to be about the money. It can be something as simple as a small token of appreciation, a certificate, a handwritten thank you note, a voicemail, a video, any little thing that you can do that says, hey, I see you, I hear you, I value you, and I appreciate you is going to go a long way towards taking a general employee and turning them into a long-term adopter. In fact, as you were mentioning this, so there is a good app for this. We've used this for a number of years company called Bonusly. I don't know if you've I heard know of Bonusly, it, I do. Our team members, they get 100 points every single month and then they can distribute those points. We make it, when you're distributing points, we tag it with a core value. So it's how a team member exhibited a core value. You could give somebody five points, you can give somebody 50 points, 100 points, and then you redeem it essentially in this online store for gifts of your choice. It's a platform that we've used for a number of years. It's called Bonusly, if anybody wants to listen to it. There's all, all sorts of like other platforms out there as well. There was something that was coming up through the book that I was the first time I'd heard this, although it does make sense, which is the boomerang employees, which is, it seems to be a more common type of situation that's arising in that you see 
employees that used to work for organizations returning to those organizations, which didn't happen as much in the past. But now in the last few years, it seems to be much more common. Absolutely. And I think this is a huge opportunity for employers everywhere. You're going to have employees that for whatever reason leave. Often those are for things that are beyond our control. Their spouse or significant other gets a promotion or a job in another city and you don't have an office in that city and you don't allow remote work. So now they leave or they have a parent that gets ill and they need to move to be closer to that parent to take care of them or a child or some situation happens that's well beyond your control. This is why, as I was saying earlier, it's so important to maintain those alumni connections, because if they were great when they worked for you the first time, don't you think they'll be even better the second time? They already know the ropes. They know the game. They know how it works. And they've acquired new skills and new perspective and new insight wherever they worked in that interim period. I love the idea of team members of mine going out, having great life experiences, maybe even different work experiences, then bringing those learnings back to the fold. And if you have a culture of a gratitude and a culture of appreciation, and a culture of innovation that is accepting of those boomerang employees, now you are able to advance and accelerate in ways that you'll never be able to do it just with your in-house team. I'm going to give a huge thank you to all the incredible guests who shared their insights during this season of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, Download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit LegalPodcast.com.